0: Would you, um, would you pray with me before we read God's word together? Father, as we hear the um, little feet running out of the classroom to their Sunday schools, I pray for those children that they would be saved, that they would hear the gospel truth, and that their hearts would come alive, and that they would bow their knees to King Jesus. Would you give our Sunday school teachers grace? Um, would you give the children understanding and would you lead them gently as you do, um, to the savior and, uh, Lord, I pray for us in this room now as we come under your word, as we hear it, um, may our hearts be soft and may we receive with joy, um, the word and, uh, would it change our hearts? Would Would it help us Lord help us to be more like you help us to hear and to receive and, um, be changed, to be more like you. Uh, Pray for Sam as he preaches, that you would give him boldness and humility. Um, Lord, bless us as we come under your um, rule and reign, in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and turn with me to Hosea chapter 11, verses 7 to 9. Hosea, chapter 11, verses 7 through 9. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboiim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath.
1: So this week as I was prepping this message, I had a really hard time because as I was understanding God's heart more and more in this passage revealed, is also revealing my heart and how foreign God's love is to me. Not, not only foreign in the sense that it's different from what I understood His love to be, but also foreign in the sense that I don't love like He loves always. And just to give you a glimpse of our week, Joanne and I... Um, Imagine these are children right here, and they have butts in their hands, and they did this to us. They, our butts were handed to us on a platter this week, okay? Our kids just destroyed us this week. This was such a hard week in parenting, um, and um, everyone who lives with us knows it was hard. Uh, tempers ran high. Uh, Joanna is not even here. I don't even know where she is right now. Where'd she go? <laughs> um, it, was, it was rough, and um, I did not see the love of God pouring out of me this week. And it was uh, a challenge. There, there was one morning where um, I was praying like I usually do. And I was asking, Father, make me like your son. Transform me to be like Jesus. I want to love like you. I want to be like you. And like right after I say amen, <laughs> um, I, I realize I'm late. So I got to go to work. And I also have to go to the doctor. And before I leave, Joanna's like, hey, can you go to the library and drop off some books and pick up this book that's reserved? And I'm like, oh, you know, uh," and I said yes earlier, and then I kind of changed it, waffled because I was late. And I was like, oh, I don't think it's good. And she's like, come on, you know, and she said some stuff. And because I'm a very servant minded husband, I was like, yeah, okay, I'll do that for you. Um, And then um, I'm I'm running out the door, um, and every kid needs another hug. Again, before I leave, I'm like trying to get them off of me, and I, and, I, and I get to my car, and then I open the garage door, and a car is parked in front of my car, and I'm like, come on, and Elijah's watching me, Elijah's like, are you okay, dad? I'm like, no, I'm not okay, right? First world problems, and, and, and so then the car is removed, and, and then I drive to the, to the library, and the library is closed. So I'm sitting there, and I realize the library opens up in 10 minutes. So I'm sitting there like a crazy person, like ah, right? Because I, I want to get to places on time, and I'm freaking out. And 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 the worst thing to do when you're angry, or maybe the best thing to do is is text someone. So I text my wife while I'm angry, and I'm like, How could you do this to me? I feel so disrespected. Oh my gosh! I I'm, I'm wasting my day away, and I'm just sitting here in the in the parking lot. And Joanna's like, You could just go. I'm like, No, I'm already here. I gotta be here. And then and then as I drive to the doctor's. Um, God starts working on my heart. And before he does, I'm thinking about all these different ways to get back to her. I was like, maybe I'll tell her. I'm not going to come home till late tonight. You got to deal with the kids. And I was like, man, that's so stupid. Why would I do that, right? Like, that's punishing Joanna and the kids for, for that. And then God just starts softening my heart. I realize what a fool I am, how fickle and how weak and how selfish my love is. And I send her messages of apology, and uh, she forgives me. And I'm just praying the whole way to work after the doctor and... And I'm just realizing, like, I'm going to preach this sermon this week about God's love, his patient love, and I'm not like him. And so this has been really heavy. And probably you can relate with me. Probably this week, you can probably think of times where patience, grace, and mercy just was thrown out the window. Just me? Just me? Amen? Or oh me? Let me ask this. At what point does your love go out the window? How far can someone push you, neglect you? wrong you, whatever it is, before you're like, I'm done, I'm done. And all of us here have different levels of a threshold of where, how far we can handle it, but none of us are like God. And as we look in their passage today, we're going to discover that God does not love like us. That's the title of this message. And the main point of the sermon, God does not love like man, or God does not love like us. And this is going to be a really powerful dive into god's heart and character and it's he, how he loves so unlike us and that is really good news for us would you just pray one more time with me father help me tell the truth and nothing but the truth grant to me concision of speech clarity of thought i want to serve my people well and the visitors who are here i want them to be able to see you more clearly by the time they leave help us all meet you we want an encounter with the living god through this text And not just a sweet, nice sermon and a nice Sunday service. Help us see you more clearly. And if there's any false views of you, which there are in here, abolish them and help us see you rightly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So, as we're diving back into Hosea, we're almost done with the series. Just to remind you, Hosea is God's glimpse of the way he relates to his people. So what he does is he talks to this prophet, Hosea, and he says, hey, Hosea, if you want to know what it's like to be married to the people of Israel like I am, and you want to know what it's like to be a father to these rebellious children, you need to do the same thing that I'm doing. And so he calls him to love a wayward wife, and he calls him to have children who are some that are probably not even his own, and who are going to reject him. And he kind of basically says this. Until you love those who wrong you and rip your heart to shreds, you won't understand what my love is like. And once that starts happening to you, you're going to start to get a glimpse of how my reality every day with my people. And so that's what Hosea is doing. Hosea is giving us a living picture, a living illustration with a family of what God's relationship is like with his people. And so let's look at verse 1 of Hosea chapter 11. It's on the screen. If you do not have a Bible, if you do, please open it up. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, real quick, there's some language here that's maybe unfamiliar, if you're not familiar with the Bible. But the passage here is reminding us of the Exodus, when God brought his people out of of Egypt from slavery. And here, notice what he calls Israel. He calls them a child. Not when Israel was a subject or a slave, when Egypt was just, uh, where Israel was just this thing that I, you know, kind of cared about. No, when Israel was a child. Notice the familial language there, the personal language there. And and he's just not, oh, a child that I have, because, you know, there are some parents out there who don't really love their children as they ought to, but the child that I have that I love. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Amazingly, God calls his people son or child, which is very, very unusual in that context or any context of a religion. It's super personal and super um, intimate. Look at Exodus 4.22. It's on the screen. This is just kind of showing you how this connects. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, this is God speaking to Moses, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So not just son, firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if Pharaoh refuses to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Which ultimately, if you're familiar with Exodus, that's what happens. Pharaoh refused, and so God, you don't mess with my firstborn son. You mess with my firstborn son, I'm going to take you out. It's the ultimate, my dad is stronger than your dad kind of situation. You know, my dad can beat up your dad. Anyone ever do that? This This is what's going on here, except... It's, it's 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 more than just a beat up god calls israel his firstborn son which is a super big deal because remember in this context a firstborn son would inherit everything would be the favored son in their context they would inherit the the majority of the inheritance and blessings would abound greatly yet check out what happens to this firstborn son look at verse two hosea eleven two. this is israel he's speaking of. the more they were called the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bales and burning offerings to idols. So despite God pursuing them and loving them, they're running from him. So he's pursuing them and they're just running. And and this is not some weird creep God who's just pursuing this person random bison. Hey, 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 I love you. No, no. This is a people who said, we're committed to you. Do you remember the end of Deuteronomy? They're saying, we're committed to you. We'll love you with all our hearts and minds and souls and strength. And so this is the people who have had a, a ceremony with him, saying, I'm committed to you. So, so think, think not only father-son imagery, but also think bridal imagery. This is a person you're committed to. And as the more Yahweh, the God of the Bible, loves Israel, the more they run. The more they go to other lovers. The more they, more they sacrifice to other idols. Look at the insanity of all this by looking at verse 3. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim is just another name for the northern tribe, which is Israel. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. Do you hear the vivid imagery here? It, it, imagine a, a father with a, a toddler toddling about and he's holding the feet, holding the hands, not the feet, that would be weird, holding the hands as the toddler walks, teaching him step by step as his legs get stronger. And eventually, what happens is, is it, it says that he would fall. I, led the, I took them up in their arms. What is that language? Implying, I took them up in their arms. Imagine this toddler being led by the arms and the hands, and and then eventually he starts walking on his own, toddling, and he falls. And here's the father. He sweeps him up into his arms and kisses the scrapes and wipes the tears and holds him tight. This is the imagery we see. This is a very, very intimate, passionate, loving picture of a father and a child. It's it's like God saying this. I found a little slave boy, and I bought him at great cost to myself. Took him home, adopted him as one of my own blood children. Made him my firstborn, and, and promised him to inherit everything that I have. I taught him how to walk. I wiped his tears. I wiped his butt. I took care of him, and I gave him everything. And he rejected me as he got older. As he started to learn how to walk by himself without my help, he started to get cocky. He started to think, oh, no, it's me. I'm strong. I'm beautiful. I'm great. And now he won't do any, have anything to do with me. Now he's totally rejected me and left my home. Now he won't even talk to me. He's just going to other families and going to other gods and going to other places. That's kind of what we're seeing is going on. But they did not know that I healed them. They're forgetting that everything good they have is from the Father. They forgot it. Is. And God continues to show how he's loved them by looking at verse 4. Look at this. Look at verse 4. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Now verse 4 is a little different. So if, if you are like me growing up, not in the country, I know a few of you have, this is like, what, what is he saying? This is just garbled to you. But, but the, the illustration shifts from a language of a father and a son or a parent and a child, to now um, an ox or a, a farm animal. And so as, this, as he's leading them, listen to this humbling words. I bent down to them and fed them. Do you see that? I bent down and fed them. This God, this great God is condescending himself to bend down to, to feed this animal. God is not only teaching him how to walk and nourishing him, he's providing for his um, food, he's providing for his sustenance, and he's taking care of them. But they're rejecting him, so verse 5 results. Here are the consequences of their rebellion. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. Now, there's a lot here, but notice the personal reality here shown. They have refused to turn to me. He's not merely just saying they are not doing good things in their life. They are making poor choices. But this is a highly personal reality. They are refusing me. And what will happen is they'll be taken by Assyria and become prisoners of war there. And we know this will actually happen and Israel will not fully listen to him because in 722, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, comes and just wrecks the city and takes a bunch of them captive to Assyria. Now look at verse 7. This is what we read earlier, Travis read. My people, hear this, my people are bent on turning away. My people are bent away, bent on turning away from me. Uh, in in the, the words of the famous hymn, you guys probably know, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This has been happening for many years. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. This is weird. This is weird right here. Though they call out to the most high, he shall not raise them up at all. This is a confusing verse because you would think that if they're calling out to God, God's like, oh yeah, I'm so glad you're calling to me. Boom, I'm right there. What? Why is he not responding to them? So here are two theories. Um, both, I think there's truth to both of them probably. Uh, one is that the reason why when they call out to God, God is not gonna answer them is because they've hardened their hearts so much for so many years, hundreds of years, that even if they called out to God, it would just not be authentic. It would just be one of those things, hey, hey, just help me out of this. Oh, okay, all right, now I'm going to use you again and abuse you and do my own thing. Thanks for that help, right? You guys have probably seen that in your own heart, right? God, I need you, I need you. We get all of a sudden very pious, and then the moment he needs us, thanks. Now I can forget you again. Come back to you next time I have a tragedy. Number two, the other theory, I think, is that they're actually not calling out to Yahweh. Notice that it calls them the most high rather than the Lord, and In English translations, when it says the Lord in caps, that's Yahweh in Hebrew. And and Yahweh was the personal God that only God's people knew of him. No one else could call him Yahweh. It was this personal covenantal language that showed his steadfast faithfulness and love to them. And so they're calling most high. And so some scholars would say that this passage is implying that they're actually calling him a different name kind of bringing in the other cults and other Baal worship, the other worship of other idols into their calling of him. And so God's like this, that's not even my name, man. <laughs> I'm not going to answer you. That's like you calling me something that's complete. Hey, Daniel. I'm like, I'm not, I'm, I'm Sam. I'm Samuel. Kind of, you know, but no, it's not my name, right? It, it's almost kind of like I'm with my wife and I'm calling it another girl's name. Yeah, come on. God's like, dude, that's not even my name. Why would I even respond? Why would I even, you don't even know me anymore. You have so brought in other, the culture and other worldviews and other, um, uh, other idols to where you don't even know me anymore. How can I even respond to you? The state of Israel is looking so bleak and they've rebelled and abandoned their father who gave them everything and they've reached the point of no return it seems. And the other day, as we were prepping this sermon together, we do this group with our team where we look over the sermon. Pastor Ross had this really powerful observation. See, the the Israelites were bent away from God. And in verse 9, we see that God's heart is bent towards Israel. Isn't that beautiful? Though man's heart is bent away, God's heart is bent towards Israel. Let's look at verse 8, which is one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Bible. This is the Father's compassion. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Now, there are a handful of things in this passage that may be confusing that I'm going to unpack in a second. Certainly some names of cities. But let me just highlight one reality first. Notice this. That God, the creator, the all-powerful, the all-knowing, feels. He feels deeply. You see this language? This isn't impassionate, just... Yeah, you know, it's bad that they're not loving me. There is a deep emotional response here. God is giving us a, a glimpse into his heart that he feels deeply about us. He feels deeply about wrong. He feels deeply about good. That's why he's using this language and he's also giving us these pictures about a father and a son and a, and a bride and a bridegroom. He's trying to give us a glimpse of how deeply he feels. Notice this word, when my heart recoils within me. You see that word recoil? Is that like a comment, just a very, very like non-feeling recoil? It's like, oh, I, I can't go there. This word in Hebrew is also used when it talks about taking over a city, overthrowing it. Ripping it to shreds. And so Yahweh is basically saying, listen, Israel, my heart is torn to pieces over this situation. My heart is torn to pieces over you. So if you have this mindset that God is unfeeling, and God just doesn't care, he's deistic, he's separate, that is not a biblical picture of God. He deeply feels He is like a father who's deeply grieved and hurt by the criminal actions of his son. And yet the problem is he's also the judge of the case. And he's also the jury. And he's also the executioner. He's also the prosecutor. He must prosecute because that's his job. Because if he's a good king, a good judge, he's got to fulfill justice, right? And yet that's his baby boy. That's his baby boy at the stand. That's his son. How can he do that to his son? How can he give up his only child, his firstborn? You see, the love of God is not neat and pretty. It's complicated by the fact that the object of his love, us, is messed up and wayward and deserving of judgment. Notice this tension that we see here. We're going to tackle it more, but notice what Jesus, what what the Father says. His compassion grows warm and tender. Warm and tender. Is that what you think of when, when you think of God? He's warm and tender. I'm afraid some of you have a view of God that is harsh and irritable. It is not. It's warm and tender. Now, if you reject him for long, that changes things. We'll talk about that a little bit. But God's disposition towards his people is warmth and tenderness. Some of you really need to receive that because you don't believe it. God's word says that you can take it to the bank. If you have a very stoic, hard picture of God, cast it out. He is not like your deadbeat dad. Or maybe you had a dad who was around, but he was unfeeling. He never told you he loved you, he never showed it. Maybe he provided enough food on the table, but he did not express it. God is not like that. And this is especially essential for us to grasp because a lot of times when we go through hard things in life, we mainly think, God, you're either not there or you're not a good God because my life is hard. Because our understanding of love is so small that if something bad is going on in our life, God doesn't love me. If he loved me, he'd do everything I want and make my life perfect, right? We can Easily believe the lie that God does not care when we're suffering, that he's being cruel. Maybe he loves us, but it's tough love. Maybe he's like one of those fathers that says, this is good for you. You'll learn something out of this. This is tough love, so one day you're going to appreciate this. This is for your own good. Maybe you heard that from one of your parents one time. This is for your own good. Even when we are disciplined or if we're just going through a hard trial, please, please get in your mind that God is feeling. He's grieving through it. He's hurting, though he's not disconnected. Listen, have any of you guys ever been spanked by your parents? And they said, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Right? Yeah, amen-ing. Yes. Michaela's like, mom. Anybody ever heard that? This hurts me more than it hurts you? Nobody believes their parent when they said that. <laughs> like, you liar. <laughs> you should be spanked, right? Listen, you can believe God in that. It does hurt him more than hurts you. Don't, don't think about a God that is like a father who's just disconnected and just spanking and just like whatever. Or angry because he's mad that you messed with his day or his TV time or ruined whatever. But a God who is crying as he's disciplining. A God who's torn to pieces as he's seeing you go through trial. He's a dad that deeply loves his kids and wants the world for them. But also, this is a God who knows all things. He knows all things and he knows exactly the path for us to have life and life abundantly. And as you guys know, if you're any age older than like 10, you know that the, the path towards life and maturity is usually wrought with suffering and trials. And so as he leads you through these paths and through these valley, valleys of the shadow of death, believe me, he's crying through it. He's crying. He's not like, well, this, you'll learn one day. You'll thank me when you're older. No, he's, he's deeply affected and moved by it. He is not like the fathers of this earth. And if you had a great father who showed that, praise God. And I pray that I'd be that kind of father. Listen, if you've had an unhealthy or abusive relationship with your father. Know well that God does not love like he does. And God does not discipline like he does. He does does not discipline to enact vengeance on you. That's not what God does. Let's go deeper into his love. God says this. How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Now these two words are probably really unfamiliar. um, And I would bet 95% of you here have no idea what he just said. Now, you may be familiar with two names, two names of cities like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? You guys hear that name, Sodom and Gomorrah, some bells, right? Sodom and Gomorrah are famous, are infamous for how wicked they were. So wicked that God absolutely destroyed them. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah were two cities, larger cities in a plain that had two other cities nearby, Zeboim and Admah. And when they were destroyed... They were destroyed and they were wicked also the whole area was corrupted and evil and bent towards wickedness and so here's a question that you should ask if you're a thoughtful bible reader why is god listing these two insignificant cities instead of the big ones that we all know why doesn't god say how can i treat you like gomorrah or like sodom well here's a theory is that those two cities right here that we see were unknown and forgotten. Like, most of you probably didn't even know their name. They were a a passing thought. And God is, his heart is recalling with him and saying, I don't want to treat you like that. I love you too much that I cannot let you be a passing thought. Though the world may forget you, I will not forget you. And notice... That for him to say, how can I treat you like these two cities, is implying that he ought to treat them like those two cities. Justice is demanding that verdict, and his compassion is growing warm and tender, saying, I can't do it. My hand stays me, keeps my hand back, even though I ought to. When you look at this passage, you should see, see this in conflicting emotions going on in God's heart. and We're going to talk about that a little bit more soon now let's look at verse 9 because this this verse is the foundation of this entire passage we have to go here i will not execute my burning anger i will not again destroy ephraim for this word for is important he's the reason and the, the ground behind everything i am a god and not a man the holy one in your midst and i will not come in wrath hear that language i am god and not a man Before we go further, notice that he does, in fact, have burning anger over sin. He says, I will not execute my burning anger. He doesn't say, I don't have burning anger. He says, I will not execute it. In other words, he has burning anger. God does care about our sin. He cares about injustice. He cares about wickedness. He's deeply upset about it. He's not passive. We cannot have this domesticated view of God where he's only love where he doesn't give a rip about the injustices of the world. He doesn't care about your injustices and how you contribute to the brokenness of this world. He does. He deeply cares. But yet, in this passage, he is not executing. Why? What is he doing? Why is it that fact that he is withholding and not executing? I will not again destroy Ephraim. To be clear this does not mean that they won't be judged or disciplined if you know the history they're going to be exiled and the city will be destroyed but they're survivors and so notice earlier on he said i'm not going to treat like Adma and zeboim what happened to them complete destruction god is saying you will be judged but i will leave survivors i am not going to give full vent to my wrath and my anger and my punishment because of my compassion, and there will be hope. There will be a remnant that will have hope and will find life. And so he will judge them and will execute it at some level, but it will be discipline. It would be a heart because he wants to reconcile, not a heart just to judge and destroy. Now here's a question to ask yourself. Why is God refraining from full punishment? Is it because all of a sudden Israel became lovely and repentant and sweet and and asking for forgiveness? We don't see that anywhere here. There's zero evidence in this text, in this context right here, that they did anything to change the verdict. The reason God points, changes everything, and withholds the judgment they're worthy of is because of him. Notice that. For I am God. That's the whole reason why. Why am I not going to... Rightfully judge you as any man would, and rightfully inflict punishment and vengeance because you've rejected me like any person would because I'm not like other people, because I'm God and not man. That's his reasoning. Let me share a quote from you from Charles Spurgeon. It's long and some of the language is a little dated, but I think it's so powerful and worthwhile. Check it out on the screen. When God can find in man, oh my goodness. I promise I split it up in prep. Hopefully hopefully you have ridiculously good eyes or you can listen very well. When God can find in man no reason for showing mercy to him, he still finds a reason for displaying his mercy. For he looks for it in his own heart. Amen. He does not say, I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for he's not as bad as he might be. And there is really something hopeful about him. No, the Lord does not let the bucket down into that dry well, but he fetches the argument for his mercy out of himself. For I am God. It is not what Israel is, but what I am that decides the case, says Jehovah. I will have mercy upon Ephraim because I am God and not man. Guilty one, your hope of pardon lies in the character of God. And more quickly and completely you recognize this fact, the better it will be for you. Do not be looking into yourself to find some reason there why God should have pity upon you. For there is no reason within you but what Satan can answer and overturn. Rather, look to God, especially as God looks to himself. For your hope lies in what he is. Did you guys get that? If you want mercy, if you want to know why God would have mercy, don't look at yourself. Oh, it's probably because I have really good looking whatever. You know, it's within himself. That out of the overflow of his mercy and his goodness, he is pouring it upon unworthy people. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. Notice that he is contrasting himself with man. This is what man's like. This is what man would do. I'm not like man. And one of the biggest issues in our day is that our theology and our understanding of God has been domesticated by comparing it to what man is like. We're trying to make God look like man. His actions are not as expected. He acts like God would not a man. Man would expect uncontrolled vengeance. That's what man would do, but God is not a man. Therefore, he is is free to act in ways that transcend human limitations and human understanding. Let's go deeper. As you guys know, love is such a watered-down, ambiguous reality. Oh, I love you. I love this. I love gum. I love you, right? Love is so weak. But God shows love through concrete examples. His love is Solid. Yes, he does feel as we see in these passages. Yes, there's a motive feeling here, but his love is founded on reality and action. So here are five quick reflections on how God is not like man in his love. Number one, a good ma- a good man may be willing to reconcile with someone who's asking forgiveness, right? But many men won't even receive you and reconcile with you, even if you ask for forgiveness. But God is not a man. For God. He seeks reconciliation even before Israel even sniffs, has a sniffle of remorse, before they even want reconciliation, before they even realize what they have done. God is not a man. Number two, here's another reflection. A good man may be willing to reconcile if the offender promises not to repeat the offense. And many won't even do that, right? Many won't even forgive someone, even if they know that person won't do it ever again. But God is not a man. God is willing to reconcile us, and note this, he knows all things, so he knows the future. And so he knows how many times you're going to wrong him in the future, and yet he still pursues reconciliation, and yet he still forgives. God is not a man. God does not love like man. Number three, what innocent man would ever take the penalty of those who have wronged him? Who would ever say, hey, I know you wronged me, but I'll pay the fine. I'll die for that. No, man doesn't do that, but God is not a man. God embarrasses himself before the nations by repeatedly loving Israel, even when they run from him. He's like the husband who keeps going after that wayward wife, and everyone's saying, you can't keep her satisfied. She keeps running from you, and he keeps going after her. And God doesn't just pay the debt with his reputation. He pays pays the debt with his own son. God is not a man. Number four, what man would continue to pursue reconciliation even after he's been rejected once? Have you guys ever tried to make things right with someone? Maybe they wronged you, and you're like, all right, I'm going to try to be a good Christian, and I'm going to try to make things right, and you do, and they're like, I don't want that. They're like, well, I tried, God. I tried. See you later. I sent that text. All right, But God is not a man. Even when he is rejected, when he pursues, he doesn't, he doesn't pull up his pride and say, how dare you? I don't even, you don't even deserve this, right? He just keeps pressing it. He keeps pressing it because God is not a man. Amen? Number five, what greatly wronged man would want to live with his enemies? It's one thing to forgive. Another thing is to, hey, I want to live with these people who wronged me. But God is not a man. God came as a man lived with his enemies, became one of them on the cross, and then he adopts all the enemies and brings them into his family, and forever in heaven he will live with them. And so the only people in heaven who are going to be with him are ex-enemies. For God is not a man. God does not love like we do. God's love is not like Hollywood or like a romance novel. It's much more powerful and robust and more beautiful than we could ever imagine. Amen. This week, we're going to go deeper in the midweek podcast into verse 10 through 12. But let's, let's wrap up and talk about how should we now live. Let's bring this home. We've been talking about the heights and depths of God's love, and we could go deeper. And all that I would have, the skills and the understanding to tell you that better, but I don't. This is all that I could give you for now. But let's look at how we should now live. Let's look at the faithful son. Here's a question. Despite our unfaithfulness... How does God still love us? Someone asked recently in one of our missional communities, they said, hey, I I sin every day. How can I be right with God? How can God be just and yet love us when we are unjust? What if we are bent away from him this week or perhaps this last year? How can God be just and yet loving and not diminish either aspect of his character? Is it like a coin flip? Hey, I kill them, I kill them not, right? Like today, oh, I'm going to be just and merciful. I'm going to be merciful to you and warm and compassionate. Oh, oh, sorry, today I'm going to destroy you. What attribute wins out? When does God choose justice and when does he choose mercy? This is a huge issue that we have to understand. The first one of this passage gives us a little clue of how God will ultimately do this. Do you look at verse 1 again? When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called him, called my son. Do you guys remember where this is spoken again in the Bible? Matthew 2 14. Herod is threatening to kill all the babies, and so Jesus' family, he rose and took the child. Joseph and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son and from there Jesus would eventually return from Egypt to Israel just like Israel escaping the bonds of slavery in Egypt so for Israel and for us family hear this Our only hope is Jesus, the faithful son. Jesus was the faithful and true and better son that Israel never was. Jesus always did right. Can you imagine that? I know we know that Jesus was perfect, at least in theory. Can you imagine never doing wrong, never having one bad thought, never having one day where you complain, never having one day where you woke on the, woke up on the wrong side of the bed, never ever lusting, never ever getting unrighteously angry? Can you imagine that? And Jesus was that faithful son that Israel never was. And this perfect son was executed on the cross for sinners like you and me. And on the cross, listen, on the cross, Jesus was treated like he only did wrong his whole life. He was treated like he only did evil, like he did every single thing you and I ever did, everything that we're shamed by, ashamed by, that was put upon him on the cross. And as a result, justice was satisfied. Justice was vindicated. The law was fulfilled. But yet, at the cross, love was satisfied. The father and the son willingly came up with a plan to rescue his people and for the son to willingly die for the sins of all man. And so on the cross, you have justice and you have mercy kissing, coming together. Inflexible justice that should not flex and unfathomable love coming together. And so both God's attributes fully his wrath fully his love coming together, neither of them being diminished at all. And so all of us who put our trust and allegiance in Jesus, we are now treated as if we lived the life Jesus lived. You remember how I just went nuts a second ago? Like, can you imagine never doing wrong, always doing right? Now God treats us as if we were those people. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? If that doesn't shock you, you have gotten hard. Your heart has gotten hard, and you have forgotten the goodness that Jesus Because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you are now treated as if you live like Jesus did and not like you did live. So, Christian, if you blew it this week or this month, Jesus is still our only hope. Don't look back to that one day when you put your trust in Jesus and you got baptized. That's important, but look on it today. Today afresh, bow your knee before Him. Today afresh, put your hope in His life and His death. Today afresh, Commit your allegiance to Jesus. Today, afresh, receive his forgiveness. If you are not a Christian here today, if you are a skeptic, I'm so glad you're here. But today's the day you can have this. This great news can be for you. It really can. That's why I'm here. Jesus made a way so that you can receive his love and not judgment. Right now, love is being offered to you. His heart is being offered to you on a platter Eternal love and relationship forever is offered to you. Life and life abundant is offered to you right now, and you can have it, but if you do not want it, he will not force you to have it. If you do not want him, he will not force you to have him, and you will get what you want, because if you want separation from him, you will get separation from him forever. He is doing this right now. Have my heart. I made it away. I removed every barrier for you to have me, And one day, if you keep saying no, you say, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. You remember earlier on, he says, how can I hand you over? He will hand you over to what you want. He will hand you over to your sin and your own control. If you want your own control, you want to be your God and just play with him and use him to fit your agenda, you will have that forever. You will forever in eternity have that separated from him and hell. But if you want this love, you can have it. Like I said, he made every barrier. He removed every barrier so you can have him. Just put your trust in him today. Come talk to one of us. Put your trust in him. Repent of your sins. Put your allegiance into him. Get baptized and join the church. We'd love to talk to you about that today. Now, for us Christians, let me apply this to us. I bet in the beginning of the sermon, a lot of you guys were like, dang, that's me, Sam. I lose my temper. I I love with impatient love. I'm quick to anger. I can be resentful. If you think, though, on the other hand, that you're like, man, I'm a pretty loving person. I love like God. Let me ask you two questions. If you are so confident that you love like God does, how do you respond when people wrong you? Or when they don't love you as you ought to be loved? See, those two questions really right there reveal how much you really love like God loves and how much you believe his love for you. If it is true that we love so unlike God, how can we now love like he does? Well, look at John 15, 12. Throughout the New Testament, something beautiful happens. God does not merely command us to do things, but he tells us to do things out of overflow what he's already done. What I've done for you, now you do it. Whenever he calls us to love or serve, it's always rooted in how Jesus has done the same for us. Look at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Did you hear that? As I have loved you. Shame on the preacher who just says, love other people. Because you can't love other people for long. But this kind of love that God calls us is impossible. And the only way you can do it is if you receive the love that is impossible. Then you can start loving like he does. What God has done to you, he wants to do through you. So if you struggle with loving God, loving others like God does, like I do, it's because you have a long way to go in understanding how much God loves you. You have a long way to go receiving the gospel. The reality is all of us here are unbelievers. What I mean by that, all of us here in certain ways don't believe in the gospel. Certain areas of our heart we have yet surrendered to his love. Certain areas that we have resisted his love. And so every day it is essential that throughout the day we rehearse gospel realities. In the morning, I challenge you this week, in the morning, every one of you, no matter how busy you are, start off the day saying, rehearsing the gospel. I was a sinner. Christ loved me while I was still an enemy. Jesus died for me. He gave me his righteousness. I deserve death, but I have now life. When you start your day like that and throughout the day remind yourself of that, it is hard to be resentful towards others who wrong you because you know how much you've been forgiven. I know that's easy to amen, and I know it's easy to hear, but it's harder to do because you can forget that. Please try to do that this week with your DNA, too. That's why we have DNAs. We need others to look at us and remind us of the gospel and the love of God and how we're not believing it in areas. A good friend will do that and look at it, and you say, hey, in this area, you're not believing the love of God. You're not believing in the gospel. So when someone wrongs you, don't just forgive them. Remind you yourself, as Christ has forgiven me, I forgive you. And as we do this increasingly more and more as a community, the gospel will take further roots into our hearts. And more and more, what will spew out of us, what will be squeezed out of us when we are pressed and wronged, is love. Finally, parents. Dear parents. Parents in here. Especially Father's. We are charged to give a glimpse of the father heart of God to our kids. And when we discipline our children and help them walk into life, do our kids have a sense that our heart, hearts are torn to pieces? Dear parents, when you discipline your children in any way that you do it, do your kids get a sense that you're more broken over their heart than more angry that they wronged you? If you are struggling to discipline your children in love like god does please share it with your dna group now let's just end thinking about god who loves like our god who is like this could you imagine making up a god like this if you could put yourself in a room and just like let's design a religion our god will be like this you would never in a million years imagine a god like this who is like this god god does not love like a man and that's really good news for us especially because he has committed his love to us forever Imagine. APC, every member of the All People Church. Imagine if every day we swam in the love of God. Every day we marinated and abided in the love of God increasingly. Imagine what kind of community we would be. We would love when people wrong us. We would love when we're not loved in return. We'll love those who are hard to love. We'll love even when we're tired and stressed, didn't get our eight hours. We would love even when there feels like there's nothing left to give. And that would be so powerful for our world to see. Our world is craving for real divine love. And we can show it in the way we love one another if we abide in his love and receive God's love first daily. And so by God's grace, let's be that loving community that has no explanation apart from God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reality. And Lord, I even ask for those who heard it and it's still bouncing off their hard heart that you would go deeper. And you meet us now. Amazing love. How can it be? May this love transform us and everyone would be blown away by your great love that you love and you don't love like a man. Thank you that you don't love like a man, Lord. Because if you did, you would have been through with us a long time ago. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.